Thank you, Moss family, for using your gifts and talents to honor the Lord. Today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and I thought as I watched those four girls sing, why have babies? Why bring lives into this world? So they can sing their glory and their praises to a worthy God. And good job, Sam. Appreciate you getting up there and mustering up the courage. Whew, it's tough. And I appreciate you not singing. Praise God. <laughs> you know, uh, not all of us, but many of us lost power. It's kind of like our new thing in our house. If there's a storm, we're going to lose power, not just like for a couple hours, but like for a week or something. Um, for whatever reason, that's what is happening in our household. But um, what are it's, it's a good reminder Every time we lose power of of blessings that we take for granted every day. And so countless times when we had no power, I'd walk into the closet or something or the bathroom and I'd flip the switch. Ah, That's right. We don't have power. But um, things that were just blessed with light, uh, being able to flush the toilet without having to. Replenish it with a bucket full of water or find that somewhere. Um, washing your hands, you know, things that just running water is, is precious and we have it. It's, and it's a blessing every day. And these are things that are so common now that we have that we just lose sight of the blessings that we have. Um, even a fresh cup of coffee in the morning for the, the power to crank up the coffee maker and be able to wake up to that. So I thank God for all the blessings that we have in this season. Talk about in his time. It is in his time that we have been blessed with a technologically advanced society. May we not take those blessings for granted. Likewise, may we not take God's holy word for granted. It's just a treasure, absolute treasure. And the older I get, the and, and the more lies and the more uh, faulty worldviews and opinions that I hear in this lifetime, the more grateful I am for just solid rock truth straight from the words of God. We are so blessed to have his holy word, to have one another. So may we not take that for granted this morning. We are in the gospel of Matthew chapter 18. We've been there for a few weeks now. And in this chapter, it, it begins with the disciples, well, really arguing, not just discussing, but arguing, the Gospel of Luke tells us, um, about who's going to be in charge. So they didn't really want Jesus to hear them arguing, but apparently they raised their voices loud enough to where he spoke to them about it. And the, the topic that they're arguing about is who's the greatest in the kingdom. Who is the greatest in the kingdom of God? Jesus, you know, they, they know Jesus is on the top. He's on the throne. But out, of, out and among us, who gets to tell the other ones what to do and who's in charge? And so they were in a heated argument and Jesus asked them about that and he shares them. He shares that question and he uses that argument and that aspiration or desire for greatness as really a launching pad for an entire chapter of a discourse on teaching about what it means to be children of the Lord. What does it look like 
for the kingdom of heaven to come into our lives. How do we relate to one another? How do we think about things like greatness? And how do we think about things uh, regarding authority? How do we view people? How do we view somebody that's higher than us or lower than us? And so he launches into an entire discourse on really relationships, uh, how to view one another and relate to one another in the kingdom of God. How do we view people at the best? How do we view people at their worst? And I think it's uh, interesting that Jesus used this opportunity to enter into a discourse They were obviously arguing and you might expect him to discipline them or rebuke them. And he didn't. He said, what were you talking about? And he gave them a chance. And then he used that as a platform to speak. And it reminds me a little bit of when I was growing up, my dad's lectures. Uh, Sometimes when I misbehave uh, as a child, I'd get a spanking. But worse than that were dad's lectures because they were more painful And uh, he would sit me down and when you you really had to think deeply about what you did and the consequences of your misbehavior, I'd much rather just spank me on the bottom, let me cry and then run off and do my thing. But when the lectures came, it was it was a teaching of why this is wrong, why you shouldn't have done it. And look at the consequences of it. And it just and to know that my dad, whom I loved and respected so much, was so disappointed in with me. It was just torture and I couldn't wait for it to be over. But man, did it, it sink in. Um, and really, this is Jesus giving his children, his, his blood purchased children, a lecture on what it, it means for you to be brothers and sisters in Christ. Even when dad's not home, when the king ascends into heaven and he's talking about, he said, you have to receive one another as I have received you. Look at one another based on the value I have placed on you, not your opinions or who you think is more important or who has the more more money. You are valuable because of the value that God has placed because I have received you. So he's teaching us how to view one another and how to temper Our importance. He's teaching us what greatness means. And he pulls a child from the audience as an as an example. And he tells them in order to even get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to turn and become like a child, which is a word for conversion. You have to be humble before you argue about who's the greatest in the kingdom. Make sure you're even in it, because if you haven't, you're humbled yourself like a child, then you're not even in the kingdom. But then from that point on, it serves as a metaphor of this, this uh, knowing our place, knowing who God is and knowing our place in the world and our place before God and not thinking that we're greater than we are, not devaluing one another. And then he goes and talks about the importance of uh, pure life. And he and he says, if, if a person has received me and they've. They've accepted me as Lord and Savior and they they love me. And now their goal in life is to worship me and to do everything for the glory of God. Woe is you if you become the vessel through which evil flows and you divert them or you lure them or you tempt them away from me. It would be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and jump into the water, which you know what's going to happen very quickly. And he gets very stern and very serious about uh, uh, caring for one another's moral purity. 
making sure that we, and he said, he even says evil's coming. It's here, it's in among us. Temptations are there, but let not you be the one to lead one of my children, my precious children, astray. And then he goes on to say, in essence, and the only reason that you would entice your brother to sin is because you are in sin. And if you are in sin, then if whatever it is it's in your life that's causing you to sin, get rid of it. And the idea, of course, is that sin separates us from God. There's something, if there's something in our lives that's separating us from God, then separate yourself from that sin. Discard it. Cut the cord. Kick it out the door and shut the door so it doesn't come back. This is very serious stuff here. A daily effort to keep our lives pure before a holy God. To see sin for what it is. To see God for who he is. And to see our brothers and sisters in Christ for who they are. Judge yourself strictly so that you will not be strictly judged by God. And so this is how he's building a case for how we are to view one another. How we are to, to get along. How we're supposed to be different than the world as citizens of heaven. It reminds me of Sarah Gilmore's testimony for Advent. God is strategically and lovingly gathering lilies. Gathering lilies from the world to present them to his heavenly father as eternal worshipers. And we don't want to defile those lilies that Christ is gathering. So Jesus has been very strict. He's been very it's hyperbole, hyperbole, and he's been very stern. And, and there's no bones about the seriousness of sin. And then we get to our topic for today. And of all things, he says, if your brother sins against you. So it's don't sin. Don't cause your brother to sin. If your brother sins against you. So he knows human nature. He knows that even if he speaks very sternly and gives that lecture that pierces us to our hearts, sin is inevitable. Sin comes. It comes through new believers. It comes uh, through seasoned and mature believers. And so we enter into this teaching, if your brother sins against you. And it reminds us of what sometimes we have to face. In God's kingdom, in God's kingdom outpost. Even those that have turned and humbled themselves, even those that have said Christ is my savior and they've made great strides and they have grown and they have gone way down the path into kingdom territory. Even those can fall into sin and can offend others in the church, the brothers and sisters. And so rather than. Waiting for that to happen. And then Jesus teaching a discourse on it. He's proactive because he knows it's going to happen. And so he includes it in this chapter, in this discourse, because it will surely happen. So we want to learn from our master this morning on how to deal with sin, how to deal with our dear brothers and sisters in Christ who have sinned against us, who have offended us. And transgressed God's word to different degrees. Before we became Christians, many of us had our own way of dealing with offenses. 
I would venture to say it's probably not the way Jesus teaches as far as kingdom. So let's read our text. We're in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. One of the first things we notice about this teaching about the offended brother or confrontation is that it's methodical. There's an order to it. It's, it's very well thought out. There's a process. There's steps to be taken and followed. It's a right way to do it. It's probably not what we would, probably not the way we would do it if we didn't know better, if we didn't understand God's word. Cherishing and redeeming relationships is incredibly important in the kingdom of God. Uh, to the flesh, sometimes it feels better to get our way. Or sometimes it feels better to, to get vengeance than it does to try to protect and cherish a relationship. Now, you don't see this kind of behavior very often in our world today where someone cares enough about another to actually confront them for their sin. And today, we don't like the idea of a right way or wrong way to do anything because then we're accountable to it. If we all agree that, yes, this is right and then this is wrong, then we're accountable to it. By not being accountable to any higher standard, then my opinion is just as important as yours and you can't do anything about it. So there. But we're not looking at a natural way to deal with offenses. We're looking at a heavenly way. And something that makes this even possible, of course, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And something that is important in this chapter and really throughout the whole Bible. Is that, and maybe, maybe you've never even thought about this in reading this passage before. But notice who's being catered to in this passage. Notice who's being thought of or considered in this passage. It's not who you might think. In our world and even in our flesh, if we're the ones that are offended, man, bring the attention to me. Come and comfort me. All the one and others in Scripture, bring them to me. I'm the innocent one. I am the victim. So use all of that and bring it in my direction. I'm the one that needs to be ministered to. I'm the one that needs healing. I have been offended. And so be it with this person that's decided to forsake God and sin. But look at this crazy change of events. Look at the, the, the heaven's perspective. It's not even bringing the care and the comfort and the concern on the person that was the innocent victim that got offended. 
It's like all the care and concern goes towards, believe it or not, the dirty, rotten scoundrel that hurt you so deeply. Just let that sink in, the concern from heaven. And there's a reason for it, and we'll look at it. Is not, and we know that there are teachings that came before this. We understand that our hearts need to be prepared in order for this to work. We have to get the speck out of our, the log out of our own eye. We have to be humble like children, remember? So there's things that you're bringing into this, it's, but it's an other's focus. And it's a kingdom focus. If we don't have that big picture, we'll, we'll lose sight of hurts. And they can take us down. And they can cause us to return evil for evil. So the exact opposite of our natural tendency to sit there and say, yes, uh, I I need to lick my wounds. I need time to heal over this. And I need time to let everybody know how evil that person was that offended me. And this passage in this teaching doesn't even go there. Not to the innocent. Doesn't even say, well, you need some time to vent and plot some vengeance to to get back. The whole idea in this is that there's a brother in need and it's not you. The brother in need is the one that sinned against you. And from a kingdom perspective, what's happening is, well, yeah, you may be hurt and offended and you have things that are real and you have to deal with them. But the one who's really in danger is the one that decided to transgress, the one that decided to sin, to forsake God. And the one that allowed evil to come into his heart to the point he would even say this or do this to you. His soul was in danger, more danger than yours. And so, my child, I want you in great care and concern to go to this one. Yes, the very one that has messed up the peace and the joy in your heart. The, the very one that has challenged you and wounded you so deeply. He is the one or she is the one from a kingdom perspective that is in great danger. Because if it's not checked, it might happen again and this person could fade away and go astray and lose their relationship. Their soul is in peril. Your spirituality is intact. This word gain, the goal in verse 15, it means to gain by one's own activity or investment. And God is asking us as brothers and sisters in Christ to actually, rather than get vengeance on those who have offended us, to invest in them of all things and of all people. To invest in our offender. With the goal of winning them back to Christ. It's, it's caring. It's restorative. It's redemptive. Why? Because the kingdom stands to gain. How many parables and stories does Jesus talk or tell us about the tremendous rejoicing that takes place in the heavens when a sinner repents? Whether it's first time you're coming to Christ or you're a believer Because in this passage, in Matthew, he's talking to believers. When you turn back to God, a celebration happens in the heavens. It's a big, big deal because you're saying no to sin and yes to God. Heaven takes that really seriously. And and he wants to use even the wounded as instruments 
to turn those that are in sin back to their heavenly father. It is an incredible community principle here. And it is not a natural thing for us to do, is it? To immediately think about the well-being of the person that just stomped on my feet. This is kingdom living. And that's the goal. My grievances haven't even been addressed in this passage. Haven't even been recognized. The concern here is not me. It's my brother. And in essence, Jesus is saying, go help him. You've got a limp. Get your heart right. Do what you need to do. And go help him. This is serious. Dealing with each other's sin. Can't just make it about us. And that's what our culture does. We make everything about us. This is very, very counterculture. So Jesus' method, this teaching here, it's very methodical. It's very ordered. It's very self-controlled. And it's really about the person that has done the offense. That they may come back, be won back to be vessels that glorify God. And of course, you know that in order to have the, the right mindset or the heart to go to the very person that has so deeply wounded you, you really do have to be a, like a little child, don't you? Because you have to humble yourself. There are so many things you have to empty out of yourself in order to do this. It's hard. He doesn't say it's not hard. This is serious, groundbreaking kingdom work. This kind of stuff. And we have to have that kingdom perspective and that attitude of humility. You're not, I'm no better than you just because you're the one that sinned against me. We're just children of God and I value you because Christ has received you and placed his seal of approval upon you. We're going to spend eternity together. It's backwards, I know. The world's way of doing it is not controlled. There's no steps. It's just impulse and, and, uh, one of the reactions that we often have um, is to be aggressive. You want to go after things that offend you or rob you of your peace and joy in this world. Somebody takes those things from you, you got to pay them back, right? You wrong me, I wrong you. You cheat on me, now you get to feel, you get to experience what it feels like. I cheat on you. You slander me, it's coming right back at you. You take your dog potty in my yard, I take my elephant potty in your yard. That's just the way things work around here. It's the balance, right? Our souls feel ruined. And in order to get that balance back in the universe of our souls, I got to inflict pain on you. Then my flesh tells me I will feel better. But really, of course, what I've only done is just cause the world to sink deeper because it's returning evil. For evil, a very short-lived peace. So sometimes our temptation is not to do this, but to be very aggressive. And then there's the other temptation, and that is to be passive. And I'd say this is found more often in the church. And that is to do absolutely nothing. And sometimes to not confront somebody who has sinned against us and has transgressed blatantly and clearly God's word. And that is for us to reason, well, I'm not a confrontational person. I'm not going to say anything, which may be true. But 
it gets a little bit messy when we cloak that with godliness and we say to ourselves or others, well, I wouldn't want to offend them or I'm okay with it. I can absorb this. I wouldn't want to hurt their feelings in return. And cowardice is cloaked as godliness. It takes courage to do this. And there are times that someone needs to be confronted. And if we don't do it, we are in the wrong. It's not godliness. It's godliness to confront. Now, by all means, Scripture also teaches, if, and we'll get that at the end of this chapter, if we can absorb offenses, if we really are godly enough to say, you know, I'm going to let this slide. It's just a petty thing. Your soul is in danger. It's just an irksome thing. I'm going to absorb it. I'm not going to hold it against you. All is good. That's great. But when things happen that are obviously to the peril of the other person's spiritual life, something needs to be said. And who better to say it than the person that's been offended by them? This is very important kingdom ground. It is it is how the kingdom really thrives and grows. And it's also how we keep the world out of God's kingdom outpost. That's we confront it rather than just not saying anything and letting it come on in and happen again and again and again and again. So many Christians take the wrong side with aggressiveness and then sometimes we just are too passive and cowardly. But it's a necessary way for us to keep one another on track. And a lot of times we say we can handle it, but what do we do? We grow bitter. But then we're ashamed. We don't tell anybody, but we grow bitter. And then it leaks out somewhere down the road in slander or gossip or something. We can't hide these things. Our souls weren't created to do that. And sin and bitterness eats away at us. And God's giving us a way here to do something right. Perfect freedom. It's liberating to be able to hover around God's word and see what it says and to be accountable to it. All of us, we're all accountable to it, even those that go and confront But it's not just about us. And Jesus doesn't say again, which might be one of our temptations. uh, I'm just going to wait for them to come to me. Sooner or later, they'll see their fault. But I'm not going to them because they sinned against me. And I just spend just soon spend the rest of my life and go through it. Then go have a word with them. And Jesus says, go. How many times does he? He's constantly telling his children, you're the ones in this world that need to go. So go. Help them see it. Shine the light on their lives. They need help. And who knows better than you than the consequences of the destructiveness of sin. Yes, it's awkward. But it's how people in the kingdom grow. I like the scripture. The apostle Paul's talking to the church. The believers in this group over here. uh, The Ephesians. And he says in chapter 4 verse 15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him. If we don't speak the truth in love, we we can't grow. We're not helping each other. We're keeping each other stunted in the name of godliness. The name of of affection, not hurting one another's feelings. So. It's crucial. That's why Jesus gives it to us. It's crucial for spiritual 
growth, there are things in our lives that just need to be checked. And the body of Christ are the instruments to check these things. So go. Now, of course, we want to we want to have our hearts prepared and we want to confront with Scripture. Use God's word. Don't use your opinions or feelings. Or, I didn't sleep all night and, and you hurt me so much. And that's why my eyes are puffy and red. Bring God's word and show the offense. Here's what God's word says. And we're all accountable to it. And, and here's what you did. Use the authority and the power of Scripture. That's where authority comes from. As we look at the end of this passage, it's based on God's truth. And he says, so keep it plain, keep it simple, use God's word. Don't make it uh, based on your feelings and hurt and keep it private at first. Now, we are not very good at being private anymore, are we? Ever since the Web, the wonderful way for all of us to keep touch with people all over the world. People's stuff is not private anymore, is it? And our temptation, it's like a big thing um, in, in our culture now to try to get people to, uh, to get attention by sending things out, let them go viral. And the kingdom way is, no, it's relational. So we do care about people's feelings and dignity, but it's in the way of restorative truth. So, you know, maybe we need to put our phones away sometimes instead of saying, put it out on the Internet. This is what my brother in Christ did to me. Look, I got it on film. And we haven't even told them about it. And then they find out the backhanded way. Hey, did you happen to look at Facebook, such, such and such as Facebook page this morning? No, what's on it? Well, you are. Oh. Keep it private if you can and respectful. Again, it's you having concern for your brother. There may be nothing more that your flesh wants to do than to take. I got to take this public man that's hurt me. Take him down. Keep it private if you can, he says. Have concern. Be controlled. Oh, that's just step one of the process. Then we have step two. Now, if that wasn't successful and you try to shed light on the sin and you were sincere and, of course, you were humble. Then you bring in the witness to 16. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, that's an Old Testament principle, by the way. And the idea is, see, Jesus is taking it very serious. You don't just throw your opinions at people and, and do false accusations and impose false motives. That doesn't fly here. This is serious stuff. I mean, it needs to be real. There has to be an offense you can put your finger on. And it either, even needs to be established by other people where it's plain and clear. And so if they don't listen to you as an individual, then you bring a few witnesses with you so that maybe they can say something and put it in a little different way. And maybe they will help this person see the light. Again, it's all out of concern for this person's soul. Now, Jesus doesn't tell us who to pick to go. But uh, since, remember, it's all with the idea of winning someone over. You've got to be tactful and you've got to be careful. So if Barry has offended me, I'm not going to take Pete and Larry. You know, I said, man, I need my two witnesses. I'm taking Pete and Larry because Barry sinned against them last year. They already hate him. And all three of us are going to go and gang up on this guy. 
That probably isn't wise. That's again about you. It's not about this person's soul. So we're keeping the kingdom perspective in mind. What can I do? What do I have to do, God, to win this soul back to you? I humble myself. I'm your willing servant. And so, of course, you would want to pray about who to take with you to win this person back. Try to find somebody they might respect, somebody they might listen to. And then, step three, if that doesn't work, you tell it to the church. It says, then you go and you tell it to the church. What does it mean to tell it to the church? Well, the church word there is ecclesia. It means the gathered ones. It's the saints of God. It's the gathered ones. But more specifically, you're going to the leaders of the church, those who represent that particular body, and you're telling them about it. Look, I went to this brother. I brought witnesses. I want to share this with you. Of course, the whole church is involved. The whole church, uh, it will be a Brought to the attention of the whole church. The whole church can be praying and have perhaps opportunities for restoration. But in this context, you're taking it to those who are responsible for the church because they're the authorities that represent the church. They're the ones that are going to go to this individual and confront him. Whoever leads, they serve as the authority. And then Jesus says after step three, if they have said no, perhaps they just it's a sin of the past and they refuse to repent of it. I, I'm not going to do it. I don't see it that way and I'm not going to repent. And it has been established now. Or perhaps they're still in the sin. It's not in the past. It's in the presence. I hear what you're saying, but I'm still going to sin. Then Jesus says they are to be treated like a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, what's the bottom line for that? I think some commentators take this idea of, well, it's excommunication or disassociation. Some of them take it way too far, and I think some don't take it far enough. The idea is, that, is this, just to do a bottom line. You said you were a believer, and you have been invited into the blessings and the privileges of the family of God. The worshiping family, the, the, the loving family, the humble family, and the family that sings or praises to me, the family that communes with the Lord's Supper. And there's all these spiritual benefits that you receive, but you are not, you are choosing not to be a believer, to act like a believer. You're choosing to be unrepentant, so you're outside the community of faith. They did the same thing in the Old Testament. If they refused to repent, you were placed out of the commonwealth. And the idea is that we're not going to pretend that you're a part of us and give you the benefits of being a part of us and let you come to the Lord's Supper Will you have all this unrepentant sin in your heart. Because then what that does is it brings the world in the church and it, it gives the message that sin doesn't really matter. Just keep celebrating with us. Keep singing your praise songs. Jesus says no sin. If anything, this chapter says sin really matters. That's why we're going in the first place. And even this is restorative. It's redemptive. So we don't want to take it so far. Say, yeah, I don't ever want to see you again. And we throw rocks at him on the way out of the church. But neither do we want to act like nothing ever happened. So they don't get to come to the table. They don't get to be a part of the commonwealth. And it doesn't mean we ignore them in public. We're always looking for opportunities to win a soul back to Christ. That's the big picture here. What can we do?
How can I invest? But they are not invited to live in the community of faith. And that's the teaching. Sin is a big deal to God. There are consequences. And there are sins and there are degrees of unrepentance that will call for what is known as church discipline in this case. And church discipline is a godly way to care for a soul. It's a godly way to care for a fallen soul. So the unrepentant sinner, the idea is to experience life outside the community. If you're going to live like you're not in the community, then experience life outside the community. And that's how we love sinners in the church. The church discipline is very difficult to be consistent with this day and time because we're not nearly as communal as the early Jews were. They were a very strong-knit community. Everybody knew what the others did, and they were very accountable to one another. And in our day and age, you can say, well, thanks, pastor, thank you, church, but I'm just going to go this, this one about 10 miles down the road where nobody knows anybody. So it's very difficult to... Um, really to follow through, but we just need to do the best we can with what we have to work with in our day and age in obedience. And this kind of obedience will strengthen us all individually and corporately. We need to see that here. That's the instruction to walk out to the glory of God. And then lastly, we have the authority. Jesus doesn't just give this, but he says, basically, I'm behind you in this. As if he knows it's hard, as if he knows it's awkward, as he as if he knows you're going to get kickback on this. Because this is very countercultural and it goes against the flesh. So he says, I say to you in 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's talking about the context of church discipline. I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So it's Jesus saying, you have the authority to do this. I'm giving you my authority. When you come together, you've done it right. You follow the steps. You've established the offense. The person blatantly will not uh, repent. Then this is the process you follow. Thus saith the Lord. So that way, when somebody says, who gives you the authority to tell me what I can and can't do? You say, well, actually, Jesus does. And it's right here. That's why we do it. Comes right from heaven. It's not because I have a beef against you and all the other things. It's because I love you. Jesus gives me this authority. And so if we say you're no longer invited, then you're no longer invited. But he gives this ability. And in, in a sense, it's Jesus saying, I got your back. I got your back when you do this. I'm with you. So you see, as we as we close this passage, how different we are to be. Look at the change that needs to take place, even in how we look at one another and specifically when we have been offended. Now, I could ask for a show of hands, but what good would it do if I said, how many in here have been offended by a sin? And then even if I said, how many in here have been offended by somebody else in this very body? I'd be surprised if every hand didn't go up. There's a way to deal with this that can cause us to be stronger and better Cause us to grow, speak the truth in love, have the courage to be different, have the courage to empty ourselves to the obedience 
of Christ. May God bless the preaching of his word this morning.